0: we are community. Welcome to another episode of our Black Gay Diaspora podcast. Today I'm with Donya a Barbadian tech entrepreneur, designer, and human rights advocate. She is also CEO and co-founder of Pete Coconuts, an LGBTQ travel organization. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. And then also in 2012, Danya co-founded Glad, a support organization for LGBTQ persons in Barbados. Danya joins me today to talk about life in Barbados and the work she's doing in bringing about a better future for all. Welcome.
1: be <laughs> introduction. Thank you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> How are you?
1: I'm good. I'm having a good time. Yeah.
0: You mentioned before the recording you're in Miami.
1: Yeah, I'm in Miami with some NGOs across the Caribbean who are looking to really start uh, social entrepreneurship ventures.
0: Is that like an all weekend thing?
1: Yeah, it's just finished actually. So I came right around, and told everybody goodbye. I have this podcast, so here I am. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for taking
0: the time to talk with me today. <laughs> I'm just looking at the sun out there because, of course, I'm in Sweden. I'm like, drink it in, drink it in.
1: It's actually quite overcast. See, it, like look bright, but it's like. Some rainy days here in Miami.
0: Really? I didn't know it rained there. I don't know why I did <laughs> not think that.
1: <laughs> it rains in Barbados too. You might be so surprised.
0: <laughs> well, I'm actually from Phoenix, Arizona. And I know in late summer, we get we call the monsoon season. Ah.
1: And I've gotten
0: people that are surprised if find out that it rains there too. So I should tap myself on the hand for s- saying <laughs> that. Yeah. How are you? How's your week then?
1: been really good being here with the NGOs. I would have left the NGO space and kind of dove right into entrepreneurship and social entrepreneurship. And at that time, there was like no support. You were either a charity or your business. So I tried like doing kind of this project route, but I found that the efficiency, you know, if we were going to serve customers to really create inclusive societies, we had to be efficient. And I felt like, The more business model was more suitable once we have our social impact, you know, as priority. So I jumped over in the business side of things and been building the business. And now the Caribbean is catching up, you know, trying to start with a social entrepreneurship piece. So I'm a little ahead of the game, but I'm really happy that they've began to start that movement. So I'm really, really happy that there's a family again.
0: I would guess in being ahead of the game that you can lead some people along the path that you're traveling down right now.
1: Oh, absolutely. The learning curve is quite steep though. Okay. You know, running an NGO and a nonprofit is nothing like running a business at all. And I took a lot of time to learn, but I think the overall goal of Pink Coconuts, even as a business exists to do what, you know, I did in Be Glad as an NGO, but a completely different model. You know our aim is to really create inclusive societies and we felt like it might be best to do that through business because people are willing to listen a lot more when you're talking about money and i learned that a little late in the game when we started talking tourism and lgbt tourism to these governments that you know make money from tourism and then they start to listen as opposed to me talking about lgbt rights and talking about the plight of the local community which is quite sad that and that didn't resonate with them enough that LGBT people were having a hard time. But when we started to talk about business and we talked about the business case to inclusion, things started to change. So I said, you know what, this strategy, you know, whether or not people like it is really going to be the vehicle that takes us there. So I do straight in and, and that's what pink coconuts is about. So pink coconuts, as well as a company, is an overall strategy to create and speed up the process of change across the Caribbean and we're working with some partners on the continent in Africa to really speed up the process of change so that's the real plan
0: I would guess too I mean of course money and tourism and then your timing now with things easing up with the pandemic it's like you're primed and ready
1: yeah especially for
0: a community that I'll let you talk more about the Caribbean, but outside of the Caribbean, where we're always looking for safe spaces to travel to.
1: Exactly. So it's really creating the perfect storm because, on one hand, there are a lot of LGBT entrepreneurs that are really starting to build their businesses. So it's a perfect partnership, one. And then people want to go back home and connect their roots, but they want to feel safe doing it. So we're really uh, tapping into the diaspora as the first row market because. You want to connect with your brothers and sisters at home and go to the parties and, you know, get Caribbean again, get immersed into the culture. So that's what we're trying to do. Connect people and have a good time while doing it.
0: Now, I mentioned in the intro you're from Barbados. I have to say I love the accent and I actually got a little preview of it because I saw your TED talk from 2016. I was like, oh, my ah. God, I love that accent. <laughs>
1: My girlfriend thinks so, too.
0: (laughs) Yes, so Barbados in the Caribbean, which is near the north of South America, correct?
1: One of the most easternly islands, you know, where if you go any more east, you'll be on the coast of Africa, actually. More to the east than anything else.
0: I know English is the official language. Not being that close to that part of the world, are there other influence outside of the British influence?
1: I mean... The thing about Barbados is that we have this very unique mix, which is just British history, historic influence and African. So while other Caribbean islands would have like French and British and African, and then you have Haiti, which is like, yeah, again, French, I think a little bit of British, but mostly French and, and African. And then you have Trinidad as some of everything I think a lot of other Caribbean islands have a good mixture. Barbados is strictly British and African and West African culture mixed together. And I think that's what makes our accent so unique. And I think even if you go to Barbados, you'll see a lot of of both just coming out in our foods. You see a lot of West African, Ghanaian foods. But you can eat that right there in Queen's Park, you know. And then you go down Broad Street, which is another place that you will find in London and these kind of places. So it's a real mesh. Well, right now, we're going to be moving into a republic soon, which is a very interesting time for us as a country to really leave the British Empire. So interesting times.
0: So what does that mean, moving into a republic?
1: Yeah, so a lot of the Caribbean islands are still not quite directly under British rule, but the monarchy still as a figurehead. While it might not influence how we do our everyday lives, Structurally, the queen is still our head of state. Hmm. Yeah, even in Jamaica, still head had a state. St. Lucia, still head had a state. I'm not so sure if they will take on the title of the Republic of Barbados, mm-hmm. but certainly, yeah, the queen will no longer be head of state.
0: Okay. You mentioned Ghana,
1: mm-hmm.
0: you know, different from the states where we lost that right away. Was that able to be kept in Barbados?
1: Ghana just presented in history the entry point. So I think way, way back, what they did is that they gathered uh, African people and Ghana was just the port from which they transported people to the region, to the mm-hmm. Caribbean. Ghana was actually the last place I went before I came over here and went back to Barbados. I was in Ghana in February and I spent about three months there. My first time, everything was uncanny, like the food in Barbados is cuckoo and flying fish. That's our national dish, and it's like this cornmeal and okra kind of concoction that you cook down, and then you have um fish stew on the side of it. The sauce is almost like a soup in it, right? And that's how people like it in Barbados. I go to Ghana and I go in one of the local shops and they present this food and it was cornmeal and the gravy now is made of okra, the same okra and they call it fufu. So it's fufu in Ghana and it's cuckoo in Barbados.
0: Wow.
1: Yeah it's wild and then even the other day I shared on Instagram I can't remember what it was called but it just looked like fish cakes that we have in Barbados and it was even presented in the same way. It was just wild. And even some of our cultures and so on. Another funny story. I remember I went on a boat trip in Ghana on a a river trip. And they played this election song, right? And everybody's just jumping out. And I'm like, yo, this is soca music. And it was so fun. We had this moment, me and this guy, we had this moment. And I'm like, bruh this is an election song that everybody loves, but this beat is pure soca music. So I had a lot of those moments in Ghana. And so the connection is just like so real.
0: It's great to hear that, you know, parts of the culture were able to, I guess in some ways be the same, but be reformed in a different location.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah, so this is not me I'm asking, I'll just put that out there, but in, <laughs> from Barbados, did you know, or did you grow up around Rihanna?
1: Well, let me tell you, I get this question at least like twice a month. (laughs) Barbados is small, right? 280,000 people. That's the island of Barbados. That is less than a million, less than a half a million, less than a third of a million. So everybody's somewhat one degree away from Rihanna. My story is that, one, my father does her mother's taxes, and then he's... Uh, Rihanna's (laughs) uncle would be at my house all the time because they were just Calypso buddies and then my father told me he used to go to school with Rihanna sometimes when Ricky his friend was going up he would tell Ricky to take me to school while you're taking Robin that was her name Mm. you know and he would just drop me off to Queens College and drop Rihanna off to her school. So these are things that I wouldn't remember. I might probably just hop in a car and go get a right to school. Yeah.
0: Who is this, Rihanna? Uh, yeah,
1: <laughs> he wasn't Rihanna then. She was just a right, robber. <laughs> in the box, with me trying to get to school.
0: Yeah, I'm glad I asked.
1: <laughs> I'm pretty sure most people have a story, like, because the country is so small. So
0: mm. So like when I first came across your name, of course, I discovered that your co-founder, you mentioned it already, uh, Pink Coconuts. Is it Rob Reyes?
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah, can you tell me a little bit about that, how that got started?
1: Rod recently joined us just about uh, a few months ago.
0: Oh, I see, okay.
1: In the startup space, a co-founder is ultimately necessary because um, we have to share the general vision. And it's a rule of thumb that in the startup space, a lot of businesses especially need more people, like business partners or, almost, to really come in and make a business happen. Rod has been really, really... Good with that in terms of sharing the vision. But when I started Pink Coconuts, it was an idea in 2017. I was in a very, very depressed place. I was very, very sad. You know, all of that work that I've been doing, I've been doing in advocacy. You know, it's really hard work, especially when you're getting a lot of pushback. And the work that Big Lad would have done was a lot of public advocacy. So that's working with politicians and churches and schools and teachers, Mm -hmm. all of these outside entities that affected the local community. So we weren't an organization that worked entirely within the community. We worked on everybody else, trying to help them to understand what this is, who these people are, like, who am I? And I had to do a lot of, I guess, a lot of emotional labor. Mm -hmm. You answer all of these questions and that kind of thing. But ultimately, people are curious and they want to know. So in 2017, I found myself, you know, very depressed. I just was this emotionally drained. I had the idea of pink coconuts, and that's when I had a lot of ideas. And so my girlfriend at the time said, you see this one? Stick with this one. So then I got a scholarship to study entrepreneurship in Boulder, Colorado. And it's a funny story because, because I thought Boulder, Colorado was in Canada, right? And then, yeah, <laughs> okay. at that point in time, I was boycotting the United States because there was a lot of racial tension happening at that time. I was like, I'm not going to the United States, but I'll go to Colorado, thinking it was in Canada. And like three weeks out, and I'm you know trying to get the flight ready and that kind of thing, I find out that it's in the United States. In
0: the middle almost,
1: yeah. Yeah. Well, I didn't have a choice then. You know, I said, all right, cool. Well, you got me. So I went, and Colorado changed my life. I really, really healed in those mountains. You know, it's not the most diverse, I can tell you that. It's like probably like 3% people of colour. It made me really think about the perception of a place and the reality. I'm not saying that United States does not have its issues with race. They certainly do, but there are places where people can exist. And that's really where Pink Cornets continue to be fleshed out as a place where, well, you might think of a country like Jamaica, People would say, oh, it's so homophobic. There are places that you can go and connect with community and have a beautiful time. And that's the definition of pink coconut. So pink coconut is a a friendly space, a company or community within a destination that unlikely or untraditional destination. So Boulder really helped me understand that, you know, despite these blanket statements that we make about entire countries, that... You know, these oases still exist. And that's what a pink coconut is.
0: I like that you shared that because I'll be honest, like I was very happy to hear, you know, to see that you started this travel company because there is that thing pushed out in the media. The countries in the Caribbean are all homophobic. And therefore, if you are LGBTQ plus, you can't travel there first of all, your experience in Colorado, but also your home country that we can find our people wherever we go and feel safe doing that.
1: Absolutely. And then even another piece of it is that how economics kind of changes the conversation. So I remember my first tech conference in Jamaica, I was leaving the hotel and the taxi driver, and he had this Christian music on it. it was blasting. And then he turned it down and he asked me, so what do you do? I'm like, well, I'm building a travel company. He was like, oh, he proceeds to pull out his card. He was like, yes, you can bring people to Jamaica. Da, 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 da. He's going on. And I was like, well, I'm not so sure if you want to, you know, work with my people. He was like, what do you mean? I said, well, my travel company is simply for gay people, LGBT people. And he paused, long pause. He was like, well, you know, everyone is everyone. I'm going to make sure they're safe. At that point in time, he paused, right? And I knew that it was at that moment that he was like, hmm, I already knew his stance, you know. It might have been wrong for me to assume, but, you know, a Jamaican man uh, playing this Christian music. And, you know, he had to make a quick decision, you know, whether he wanted this potential business or not. Yeah. And so the entire rest of the conversation was about, you know, people not feeling safe when they come to Jamaica, or people feel like if this will happen, and that will happen. He was like, well, not with me, I'm going to try to do this or whatever. And so it's with that, that is the entry point with Pink Coconuts, because it's through business that we have these conversations, and then people learn bit by bit. So a lot of companies that we're working with You know, of course, they want to work with LGBT communities, but we're telling them, okay, well, these are the issues we face on vacation. How are you going to make it more comfortable for them? Mm. How can we work together to, one, create a better environment for LGBT travelers? But how are you going to do the work in your local community? Nobody says you have to be an evangelist, you know, an LGBT activist tomorrow.
0: Right. Get your little flag out.
1: (laughs) Yeah, get your flag. You don't have to do it all. But how do we get you from this point to a little further? And that's the strategy through business.
0: Well, when I heard that, first of all, with you, it takes a lot of courage to do that. And I would guess that he felt that like this person, you're just telling your truth in a way that sounds like was very matter of fact, very respectful. And in that pause, he's like he had a decision to make this person is just just telling it like it is. I have a choice now to honor that or to basically be a jerk.
1: Exactly. It's all of our responsibility to really push people a little further. I also always think that people are a victim of their circumstances. And I try not to be too hard as an advocate, you know, just to meet people where they're at and just bring them over and listen to All of the rough questions, listen to their theories and all of that, and just give them a listening ear sometimes. And sometimes that's very difficult, but I find the strategy that works once people feel heard and not shut down completely. You know, and I recognize it's work that, you know, not everybody could do. Not everybody, you know, is at a position where they can engage with people full on like that. Advocates are at different stages and people are at different stages. But one, I think being Black. And being Caribbean and knowing that, yeah, I like this food too. And, you know, and once we are kind of rooted in that culture, because if it's foreign now, Mm -hmm. you know, they're going to be like, oh, there's different values. Y'all are doing y'all thing. And this is not our thing. So I think it's really important to just steep it in culture and recognize that, you know, at the end of the day, we're all Caribbean people. We're all black people and we share similar experiences
0: and cracking that shell too of stereotypes on both ends because yeah. you know i know for me automatically assuming as you shared like this person has let me know in his music that he's christian and he's probably got this viewpoint but on the other end most of us grow up in quote unquote straight society so yeah. we hear the rhetoric and we hear what people think about us like oh they're gonna you know, dance naked in the streets as soon as we give them permission. It's like, no, we're just everyday people.
1: (laughs) Exactly, exactly. And I think another thing too is the invisibility of the queer community sometimes, um, especially the Caribbean, contributes to all of these myths and stereotypes being perpetuated. Because if I think that a gay man is one way, And that's just what I see on TV or that's what I perceive, but I don't see all of these other versions of what a gay person could be or a lesbian or queer person in general, or trans people, then I only have that one thing to go on. Mm -hmm. So it takes a level of bravery to be out and open, but I think that's what it is. That's what's needed. We need more brave people to be out, be themselves and let the myths and stereotypes, you know, wither away with that.
0: I like that. Yeah. So like I read in the beginning, your resume, which is pretty impressive, you know, entrepreneur, an advocate and all these other things. When did you discover these passions and your drive to not only succeed, but to also be there for other people?
1: I think it came from like a deep desire to have community because when I started, I was 21 or so at university and I knew that, you know, I was gay, but I had no community. And then we started to do this panel discussion. I did this panel discussion as a humanities rep at university and it was about LGBT rights in the Caribbean. And I was very scared because people were like, oh, this thing, you know, we never used to talk about this kind of thing before. And then the panel discussion went really, really well. It was so fun. I realized how supportive a lot of the university was of course there were dissenters but overwhelmingly people were very supportive and then after it was over you know you saw like people just coming together and then you realize you look around it's like all these people are actually in this circle here talking are actually queer people you know and then out of that this Bahamian she started this organization called Key. it was queers at UV Cave Hill University West Indies And we wanted it to be a university organization, but nobody wanted to put down their names as a part of the committee. You had to submit names to the student union (laughs) to be an official club. So we remained very informal and online. And then we recognized that soon after, like people from all over Barbados were trying to get into this university group. So then we started to be glad the organization then because clearly there was a need outside of the university and that's how Be Glad was started, out of the University of West Indies.
0: And you started that with, if I'm correct, Roanne Mohammed.
1: Yeah, Roanne was, uh, she she's my girlfriend at the time. She was being a very supportive girlfriend. And, you know, since then, Roanne has, you know, made a name for herself, even in that. So I'm really happy that through that, you know, we got more advocates coming out.
0: So were you both separately and together as a couple, public about who you are?
1: I mean, what is public, really? I... I guess we were public i mean we would just be at the university together and walk around together
0: yeah what is being public because i know my own experience especially when i formerly came out to people it's like most people already knew or <laughs> figured it out and i think it goes back to energy you know especially with a couple it's like i've been in spaces where this one person's on this side of the room and the other one's on this side of the room but you, you can feel an energy a lot of times
1: oh absolutely
0: yeah uh, so what does Big GLAD stand for?
1: Well, Big GLAD stands for uh, Barbados, gays, lesbians, all sexualities against discrimination.
0: Mm. Okay. And you started it on campus initially?
1: Yes. And then we um, registered it as a charity.
0: How was it socially and legally with starting the organization?
1: It was interesting. I always remember like even registering it and going at corporate affairs office. I was very matter of fact. I didn't question that they would say no or anything i'm like yeah we're starting this organization what do we need i think i always try to just assume good and i think because of that people are like okay well they want to start an organization people were fine we got it you know in normal time if there was a delay we call he's like oh yeah they're working on it we'll get it back soon and it was smooth what wasn't smooth was uh getting a bike account Uh, I wouldn't say which bank it was, but we had a struggle. That was one of my first jobs. I worked at the bank in um, Barbados. And so I had a friend in the bank and I said, well, we're starting this company. Here's our registration documents and we need a bank account. And I remember my friend, she was like, okay. So she was fine, but she had to take it, I think, to a supervisor to sign it off or something like that. And she said that nobody wanted to touch the account. She passed it off to like three supervisors and they just had it on the desk and they didn't want to engage with it you know so that took longer than expected funny enough uh pink coconuts that was even worse in barbados and that was more recently that was about 2017 2018 you know it took three months to open a bank account to be given the all clear and then it was unclear and it was this yeah so it's interesting how government was certainly more supportive than the private sector
0: you mentioned matter of fact, and I just go back to the cab driver. It's like you presented in a way where just saying that, I think well, people probably go, oh, I maybe need to question myself. <laughs> maybe I've been in the wrong universe this whole time.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I guess I just go with assume good intent and just move like it's any other business, any other company. Like, why would you do otherwise? And if that's the case, what is the logical reason not to
0: Mm. yeah now with people outside of barbados expressing interest in it were you able to get the word out there like internationally
1: you mean for pink coconuts
0: oh sorry for um be glad more exposure um interest in the lgbtq plus community on the island
1: we would have worked initially with other Caribbean islands doing similar things. So that was really our community to start with. And then through that community, there have been networks that are even broader. So you have the Caribbean community and then you have the Commonwealth, which is an instrument that we worked with for a very long time because we all have common histories mm-hmm. being a part of the British Empire before. So all of the laws that we worked on and that we continue to work on are all pretty similar because of the connection although it's kind of interesting you know when you work on laws with the help of a country that put the laws there in the first place you know so I guess there's this level of entitlement that we do have or feel that we deserve you know sometimes like oh this is not help this is what you owed us (laughs) you know (laughs) that kind of attitude so yeah it's been a real journey Working that way, although I'm now of the belief that working through business is an effective strategy that I think a lot of other countries and organizations are kind of yet to really employ as a strategy. I think here people are employing it more as a way to replace donor funding. So that's one kind of school of thought, like instead of writing grants for donor funding, people are creating their own entrepreneurship ventures, whether it's anything that, you know, helps the charity grow and that kind of thing. But our school of thought is that through the existence of business, that in itself can create creating more inclusive societies once people are involved and we grow it, and companies are then wanting to be more LGBT friendly, It's my belief that the community will then change that way, whether it's people who have their business or whatever, and you want to be able to serve everybody.
0: And I would think to help with the perception that you know we hear throughout the diaspora that you know being LGBT is a European invention. It's like once with your company Pink Coconuts, you find out how many Black people in the states would be interested in travel. To the Caribbean and the UK, and then here in Sweden, meeting uh, Black people here who would be interested in that too.
1: Absolutely. And I think it's a movement through travel. So imagine traveling and where you spend your money and who you spend time with and your empowering local LGBT entrepreneurs, one, and two, contributing to a change in perception. So then it becomes your duty to then travel to the Caribbean. I like that. Oh, I do too. (laughs) (laughs) I'll write that down. (laughs) Uh.
0: (laughs) Uh. (laughs) So with Pink Coconuts, how was it getting it off the ground? Like, did you get interest right away with travelers?
1: No, I think a large part of it had to do with my own abilities because the learning curve is really steep for a business, you know, and the startup at that trying to maneuver through very uncertain waters, not to mention COVID because we launched in March
0: this was last year
1: yeah so obviously you know that was an awful time for a travel company to launch so we spent that time trying to find those kind of pink coconuts throughout the continent and going to Zanzibar and Tanzania and Ghana and Kenya so that was really really insightful and now we're kind of relaunching it you know in a different way with a lot of those learnings over that time and uh I think we're still building a kind of baby stage, but we have customers now and we're growing. we some customers coming through and stuff like that. And of course, there's this struggle with perfection because you want to invite people on vacation. You want to make it perfect. You know?
0: Relate to that word. (laughs) Yeah, you
1: want to make it perfect. I want to make it good. I don't want anybody to have a bad experience at all. I think generally the Caribbean, because it's so steep in travel and tourism, people are always polite for the most part. Even if you're thinking something in the back of their heads, they're generally polite. You're tourists, welcome. I can give you the directions. I'll talk in a way that you can understand a little bit more, you know, that kind of thing. So we always have that kind of culture where it's very welcoming to tourists. So
0: Okay. I saw on your website, it looks like right now you're focused on the Caribbean, but hearing you talk about traveling on the continent of Africa, would you be expanding to that region too?
1: Oh, yeah, definitely. That's what we spend COVID doing, getting those partners in East and West Africa. So, yeah, definitely. But I think it's the rule of thumb now in marketplaces that you constrain the marketplace at first to start in an area. And once that area is perfected, then you move on. So I'm just afraid of expanding too quickly. We want to just hone in on the Caribbean, a place that I know very, very well and the team knows. You know, and once we keep get in support from local NGOs and so on, and everybody comes together, then, you know, we can then move on. Because I know a lot of we supported some NGOs in um, Tanzania and so on. But yeah, we're still baby. We're still a baby. But, you know, with the support of the diaspora and the communities, you know, it can be a company that everybody wins with.
0: Sounds smart. And I thought of a a good stew. You don't want to water it down.
1: (laughs) There you go. You don't want to water down the stew. You're right.
0: (laughs) 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 So like I mentioned, the TED Talk that I I came across that you did in 2016. Yeah, yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I I thought that was very interesting.
1: I think early on, I recognized where that homophobia was coming from. I actually compare it now to this fight with COVID. Mm-hmm. You know, they say a lot of African Americans and Black people in general are resistant to vaccines and that kind of thing. I mean, that's a whole other story. But for me, I recognize it as in the past, we've been, you know, tricked and bamboozled and we've had a hard time mm-hmm. as Black people. And this is common knowledge, of course. So then whenever there's something that we feel is forced upon us, We feel so empowered to not be tricked again, to stand up for ourselves this time, Mm -hmm. to, you know, defend ourselves this time. And whenever we get that chance now, we do it. And sometimes one can argue that it could be misguided. But I think in that lies the reason why the caribbean and a lot of places on the continent remains unchanged not recognizing that a lot of the homophobia was actually imported you know but a lot of us lost the connection to home and what that feels like or what you know queer life is like in african culture and a large part of the movement is largely western and white so i mean we can talk about it as it is and Even the term LGBT is a very Western and a term that is coined by whiteness. So because of that, then I recognize, well, clearly that's why people are resisting it. You know, it's very popular in Europe and the movements are more strong in Europe and United States and so on. And so when we see something that is foreign and it's imposed because of what we've experienced in the past, we find all reasons to resist it and it's something that I understand for that reason you know and we want to resist because we didn't have a chance to before it was like you're not gonna fool me twice you know you know you're not gonna do that with me and that's why people are so like I can't see back saying oh y'all want to trick us again Uh -uh, uh-uh you're gonna trick us again so it's that same energy and I understand it it's not right but when people want to express their own sovereignty and their own strength I can understand that yeah. but uh it's to the detriment of the LGBT community at the same time
0: I think you said something like homophobia as a form of resistance I'd never heard it put that way
1: yeah yeah it's, it's resistance because it looks like imposition again it looks that way to a lot of people and you know there are all different reasons whether it's religion or whatever but you know if anything is forced upon you you want to be able to be strong and say no I'm going to resist this. Yeah. And sometimes it's a little misguided. So yeah, I called it homophobia as a form of resistance.
0: I like too that you mentioned two historical figures. Was it one, the queen who ruled as a king, yeah. who ruled over part of what is now today Angola. Yeah, And then the guy who was part of Uganda, the Bantu. Yeah, 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 I like that you added those historical figures. And you're in line with a recent guest who's from Cameroon who talked about how it's been erased and we've forgotten yeah. or maybe ignored some people who do have the knowledge that, you know, there was a lot of history of people of LGBTQ plus on the continent.
1: Yeah. And even in more modern figures like Bujubantan, he's very, very rooted in, you know, his Black culture and Blackness and then, you know, sees this thing as being in position and we don't want it wrong here and, you know, don't bring it. It's that kind of vibe of resisting again. It's anything that seems foreign. Even Dave Chappelle most recently is trying to get at that because he's like, my issue isn't gay people. My issue is white people. But then it's like, yo, black gay people exist. Black trans people exist, Dave Chappelle. So what is that? But again, it's this resistance to this thing that has a very white face, Mm -hmm. you know, that we find it hard to decipher. Is this thing just a white movement? It's just understanding where it comes from a step one, really. And then you know how to, for advocates and so on, you then know how to dismantle it.
0: I like that you mentioned him because I finally watched it because I was just curious. I got, I think, what he was going at, but my challenge was that there was no reference to those of us who were at both of those intersections, you know?
1: (laughs) Yeah, Deja I mean, he's flawed in his own way, you know? But again, his intention is to recognize that white LGBT people can be racist.
0: Which it needs to be called out.
1: Yeah. At the same time, he is still harmful to LGBT as a whole. So I think coming out of it, people feel very passionately about this issue with Dave Chappelle. And rightly so. At the same time, I think there is something we can listen to, something we can resist. Mm -hmm. But I don't think that it is just a matter of resistance and shutting up, but understanding where it's coming from and inspecting ourselves as a movement and seeing, okay, I mean, yeah, it's Dave Chappelle, but it's causing a lot of discussion. So what do we learn from it? And what do we resist specifically? Because it's not just that we resist it, but we have to hear something from it too.
0: But was it take what you like and leave the rest? Yeah. Well, to round out our talk today, what was life like for you growing up in Barbados?
1: pretty decent childhood I was tomboy of course I was a Christian yeah part of my childhood growing up was me resisting this part of me and trying to be a better Christian and trying to be more feminine and just pushing myself and like, oh my gosh I'm gonna pray it out and all these kind of things I even entered a pageant in my high school I actually won Ah,
0: oh, congratulations. <laughs> okay. I don't I want to that.
1: Uh, yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, thank you. Uh, it was just an
0: automatic response. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I entered that passion solely to become more um more feminine, a better Christian. I got my first girlfriend out of that, so that didn't really work. <laughs> and then, you know, I still struggled. With my sexuality for a very long time and then I made the decision saying I'm gonna just be a good person I'll just be a really really good person and God would deal with the rest but then I think one of the real issues that came up were obviously family and there was one thing for my family and my mother to know that I'm gay and then there was another thing, the whole new coming out to be an advocate. Because at that time, <clears throat> there were very few advocates. There was not really a lot of advocacy happening. Mm-hmm. So then for this person coming out of university and doing all this to then talk publicly about LGBT issues, it was a whole other story. And that didn't really go over well for a couple of years. And after a major award I, I won, my mother kind of switched up If people are telling her congratulations, then maybe she did something good, you know? That's true. (laughs) Because all this time she's on me about being public, and then all of a sudden I win this award, and then she's like, wait, what? Okay. (laughs) And then things started to change around that, and let me know my parents are as accepting as can be.
0: Mm -hmm. I know you're human, and, and you have all these emotions that we all have, but to have been an advocate so young or to start so young you're fearless. For me, it's like I could take some notes from that, like just stand in your truth. And I love what you said earlier, just being matter of fact about it. This is who I am, period.
1: (laughs) I think I've been out for so long that I don't know anything else because I've been through the fire already. I don't necessarily hide any part.
0: I mean, we're on Zoom and not in person, but I still feel like an easygoing energy. And I think that's attractive to a lot of people. Like if I saw you at the airport, we started a conversation. I'd be like, oh yeah, that was a great vibe. I like that. I would assume that it helps you a lot.
1: Yeah, I guess so. I guess so. With the yeah. toxic guy, I suppose. That was probably why he started to talk to me. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so with being in travel in the wonderful world of travel, and it sounds like you've been to a few places. Do you have any favorite destinations?
1: Well, besides Barbados.
0: Yes, obviously, oh. besides for
1: else. <laughs> I actually really like Jamaica. Jamaica is so beautiful and dynamic. And mm-hmm. yeah, Jamaica is one of my favorite places to visit. Um, the mountains, they're beautiful. Um, people are just extra. <laughs> Jamaica? <laughs> yeah, I love Jamaica. I've fallen in love with Kenya. Oh, okay. Yeah, Kenya is another place. Very, very like dynamic and beautiful people. Yeah, Kenya's huge. There's some of everything there. I feel a lot like home in Kenya, in Nairobi specifically. Mm. And I would encourage people to go to Nairobi. Yeah, you feel like home. You go you go to your bars and chill and stuff. Well, like, Brazil is a lovely place too, but, you know, Portuguese is a struggle for <laughs> me, you know, but yeah. I was in Manaus, which is like in the Amazon. Uh It's at the top of my list in terms of my most favorite trips. I went to see my girlfriend. I was 24 years old, going to Brazil. She was studying Portuguese in the Amazon. At that time, I'm on a budget. I'm 24, 26. I can't remember. And I took the flight from Barbados to Guyana. And then I took a van to Georgetown to Litham, which is on the border of Guyana and Brazil. That was 12 hours in a van and we slept in a hammock the van went on a boat across a river
0: the van went on the boat
1: yeah the van went on the boat okay. across the river and there were like i don't know 14 people crammed on the van and there were chickens on the top <laughs> it was such a wild trip and i did that by myself at 26.
0: you're amazing
1: <laughs> and we got to let them we had to clear the border And then another 14 hours from Sao Paulo to Manaus. Yeah, I spent almost two days traveling, not knowing a word of Portuguese, my Duolingo not working because clearly I don't have any internet. But I made it. I'm here today, standing still alive.
0: All for love. (laughs) All for love.
1: I go the (laughs) extra mile. (laughs) Smiles.
0: Well, I'm going to have to let my friend Teresa here in Stockholm know that you mentioned Kenya because her dad's from Kenya.
1: Oh, wow. Lovely.
0: Yeah.
1: Oh, Kenya is beautiful. Some beautiful and smart people. Uh, yeah, Kenya is amazing.
0: Okay. Wow. That's a note for myself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I thank you so much again for joining me, for taking the time to share your story with me. And I really appreciate it. Um, do you have anything else you'd like to share?
1: Uh, no, just thank you so much. Uh, visit com. I would be a bad entrepreneur if I did otherwise and not do that. But yeah, this was really, really good. It was really good talking to you and sharing about travels and my journey. And, you know, as much as I share it a lot, it is really nice to do that, you know, with you in particular, your appreciation for, you know, the diaspora and uh, for travel and so on. So, thank you so much, Eric. I appreciate you.
0: Thank you for spending time with us. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, comment, and subscribe. Share with your friends too. You can also follow us on Instagram at Our Black Gay Diaspora and on Twitter at BLK Gay Diaspora. Until next time.